gentlemen, welcome to These Go to Eleven. You probably noticed from the get-go, this is not the smooth, buttery voice of one Nathan Bell. It is the screechy, unpleasant voice of Greg Dutcher. Nathan is not with us tonight because uh, he has got a very important spiritual commitment to watch a pre-screening of Captain America Civil War. So he uh, that's that's actually true. Uh, so, uh, sitting in with me is Steve Hartland and we have another guest on the phone. I'm going to get to in just a moment, but how are you tonight, Steve? Hey, great. Really happy to be over here. Um, I'm uh, no match for Nathan Bell, but, uh, I don't have the buttery voice either, but great to be here. I'll tell you, Steve, your voice is better than mine. My voice is less than yours. Nathan has the king of all voices, all the voices that all the preachers want. Uh, we had a guest on a couple of uh, weeks ago. I'm not going to name him because I don't want to embarrass Shaheen Youssefi, who was uh, on here. But um, prior to um, our politics podcast, we were just riffing a little bit. And he was commenting how he and his wife talk about um, how just wonderful and soothing Nathan's voice is. And how my voice is like sandpaper. So I said, hey, none taken. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was like, none, none taken. But uh, I know he was just pulling my leg, I think. Uh, but I will certainly give up the voice to Nathan. But um, he's actually with uh, another Nathan, Nathan Bartleball, uh, who's been on this podcast many times. And um, we are preparing a special kind of pop culture movie episode comics, etc., for Friday. So wow. Nathan's going to come with a lot of energy when he gets back here. So, uh, Steve, I've seen a lot of you, man, last few days. Um, I feel like I just saw you yesterday. It's kind of scary. We need to stop this. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, Steve preached at our church yesterday. Uh, I, he, I had a week off from preaching. Uh, he had a week off from preaching in his church, and he came and preached here um, on forgiveness. And uh, tell you what, Steve, it was excellent, man. We've got nothing but good feedback. Uh, a little too convicting, though. Don't do that again. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it has to. It produces change and you know reordering of life and priorities, and that can be dangerous. Yeah, well, I got to drop the bombs and fly away. So <laughs> yeah, it's pretty which, nice, isn't that? That is always man that temptation when your guest preaching at another mm-hmm. church. Uh, I was tempted to try to correct all of your wrongs, <laughs> but I thought I'd leave that one alone. You would have needed a series for that, dude. <laughs> you know, you you you. That's not a, a one trick pony. There, you would need a ten week series to begin to uh, unpack uh, all of the things that I put out there. But um, it is great. I'm so glad you're here, um, Steve, because we both have talked about the uh, issue of the atonement, a classic Calvinist distinction. Uh, some people call themselves five-pointers, four-pointers. My sense is that the five-pointers tend to think of the four-pointers uh, maybe as a little less robust in their um, – theological precision. Uh, maybe that's an overstatement, but would you say that's something you've noticed before? Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh, four-pointers think the five-pointers are a little bit, what do they think they are? Uh, a little bit less than careful with some scripture passages, maybe. Maybe. We'll talk about that tonight. Maybe. I, I will say I read an interesting article online that referenced our guest, who I'm still holding out there as a tease just for another moment, <laughs> uh, Randy Alcorn. Uh, I was just perusing last week online. Had an interesting, I think it was a blog piece or some kind of response um, to a listener question or a reader question on the extent of the atonement. And he pretty much laid out the view of our guest. And he mentioned the men that he respects, uh, men like uh, Piper, MacArthur, Sproul, that would hold to a very, what I will call, more traditional, conventional, five-point approach to Calvinism, which is, of course, the 
uh, fact that uh, the intention of Christ on the cross was to secure the salvation of the elect and that only, only no period, other intention. No more. And he was saying, while well, he respects that, he appreciates the logical arguments behind it, uh, but uh, is a little less impressed with the scriptural support. Yeah. Um, and what you have to do to some passages to maintain that. Yes, yes. So um, when we thought we would tackle the subject, uh, I definitely come at it from, I will just put my cards on the table. I would say the the uh, five-point uh, perspective. Yet, my thinking has been challenged, mm-hmm. uh, wonderfully challenged by our guest tonight, and that is Dr. Bruce Ware. Uh, Dr. Ware, thank you for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Well, uh, Dr. Ware has been uh, the uh, professor of Christian theology. Uh, He actually holds a chair there, but as we were talking beforehand, it's uh, very wordy and impressive, and I will mess it up if I try to pronounce it. Uh, But he has taught in three different evangelical seminaries. He's been at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, for the last 18 years. As I said there, he's written a number of books. Um, He uh, has – I've heard him speak – and you can find him online in a number of different contexts. And uh, Dr. Ware, before we get into our topic tonight, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, family, background, uh, friends, things you like to do in Louisville, whatever you want to share with uh, yeah. with our audience. Well, thanks, Greg. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and my parents were Christians, uh, very, very committed Christians. I grew up in a in a Baptist church there, came to, came to Christ young, uh, for which I'm deeply grateful. Uh, really did uh, cut my teeth theologically during my college years, began reading uh, Tozer. I read Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy, just had a huge impact on me. Uh, began to read uh, bio- biographies of some of the great reformers, and and uh, just grew a lot in those years. Then went to seminary, and oh my, just uh, so much. I mean, I just loved it. I absolutely loved my my years in seminary, yeah. just it was so Me too. so yeah. uh, rich, and um, I you know I was my my dad paid my bill you know for school, so I was able to study full time. Wow! And nice. uh, and I just I just studied. <laughs> you know, it just really was such a such a delight, and it really was there that I became a Calvinist. I mean, I had been moving in that direction, but of course, the Baptist church I grew up in was a typical Baptist church that was. I mean, I describe it as Arminian until you're saved, and then you're then you're in for keeping. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Right. Uh, very very strong emphasis on eternal security. But um, so I, I really was faced with Calvinist teaching uh, during seminary. John Feinberg was was one of my main teachers, sure. uh, with whom I later taught at Trinity Divinity School. But uh, the one thing, though, I just never did buy into was the limited atonement argument. I mean, I I. I readily, readily uh, uh, embraced the other four points of Calvinism, but I just could not cross that line. And it was mainly the text, you know, uh, passages of Scripture that held me back. And uh, so then after seminary, uh, before I started teaching, this was one of the issues that was just really weighing on me to try to to resolve. And uh, it was in that time after my MDiv, uh, before I did my Ph.D. work, that I came to this understanding of uh, what I call a multiple intentions view of the atonement, and I really have held it my whole life. I, I think it, uh, I think it works. I think it explains all the passages. 
I think it's uh, very honoring to Christ, fits Trinitarian purposes, all the rest. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I, I just like it better then. Uh, yes. Than, than the view that says the atonement was exclusively to save the elect. Yes, so, yes. So, so yeah. much there. So much there, Dr. Ware. Thank you. Uh, we're really yeah. eager. Uh, I, I've right. uh, put out some teasers on Twitter today and already gotten a lot of questions and, and thoughts mm. and comments, as you can uh, guess. I, uh, I think our teaser was, hey, we're having Dr. Bruce Ware on tonight to talk about the debated point of Calvinism, four points or five points. And then we said, does anybody ever get worked up over that issue? And uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm actually going to start with this. I, I'm not trying to get you to, uh, um, you know, uh, say anything negative, obviously derogatory. I know that's not your heart at all, Dr. Ware. Um, but this was a public venue uh, years ago. And I can't remember the context, but I heard you and John Piper in a what seemed to me a Q&A format. Uh, right. perhaps at a conference somewhere, I, I think, over this issue, and you were um, giving some substance to the argument that you just set forth, that Christ had multiple intentions in his death on the cross. Uh, yes, yes uh, certainly to uh, secure the salvation of the elect, but uh, some other things as well. And my memory of that, and you could tell me if I'm getting this right, or maybe I'm a little fuzzy on it, is that uh, John Piper was was trying to get you up against the ropes a little bit, and uh, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. I remember him saying something like, "Bruce, Bruce, I, 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 what are you saying? I want yeah. you to be yeah, one of yeah. us." So, I am, 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 am I right on that? Oh yes, you are. <laughs> uh, I mean, my my uh, oh, yes. relationship with John Piper goes back to the first month that I began teaching theology. I mean, wow. so you know, I was. I was still 29 years old, uh, fresh out of my doctoral program at Fuller Seminary. Wow. John Piper was pastoring at Bethlehem and heard that there was this new professor at Bethel who had gotten his degree at Fuller, and that scared him to death. Oh. You know? <laughs> what, what, what might that mean? What so manner he of man is called this? me, and we had lunch together, and, and uh, you know, it was, it was a, a very intense lunch discussing all kinds of things, but the, the, uh, the good... <laughs> The good result of that was he realized I was on the same page with him wow. on almost everything that he cares most about. Incidentally, I, I just wonder that, if uh, I wonder if any lunch with John Piper could be anything but intense. Yeah, right. That's right. Really yeah, that's right. right. Well, it was a wonderful lunch. I mean, I just grew to love him immediately wow. and respect him. Um, but that began a, a you know a lifelong friendship. I'm so grateful for. And uh, I think when John came to learn later on that I didn't hold to. Um, to the fifth point. Yes. I, you know, I just think that really did... I, you know, he just want, wanted me to come over, you know, to, to see see this. Hmm. And, and uh, Mark Dever was the one who kind of promoted this little exchange that took place that was hmm. recorded. And, oh, uh, okay. So it, but it was spontaneous. It wasn't planned ahead of time. It just, you know, he just made it happen right there on the spot. And, How about uh, that? Yeah. So, but I, I just, uh, you know, I just have not been convinced of it. And, and, uh, you know, before God, I have to have to go with what I believe the Bible teaches. Amen. And, goodness, if I'm wrong on this, God help me, and, and please correct me, and, and uh, I'll give an account on the Day of Judgment. But uh, I cannot go against what I believe the Bible says. So in my own, my, in my own conscience. So yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, where I am, because um, in a moment I want to uh, give you the floor and ask you to to really just. Uh, 
take some time to unpack this for us. Uh, again, you've put together an outstanding, uh, it's more than an outline, wouldn't you say, Steve? It is a thoroughly substantial outline. Though They were the outlines I was always supposed to write in college <laughs> and seminary and never did. Summary of position. Yes, Dr. Ware has, uh-huh. has uh, done so. And uh, as he uh, told us before we sort of went on air tonight, uh, this is out in various places on the web. But we're going to make sure that it's in our, I guess the technical term, Steve, is show notes uh, in our little uh, summary when uh, when people check it out on iTunes or Podbean. Uh, we are going to put in a link there, like a Dropbox or something, so people can look at it. It's a tremendous resource uh, for those that want to look at the issue a little bit more. But one last little anecdote, Dr. Ware, that you may or may not be able to uh, uh, fill in the blanks, but I'll try. I have shared in the past, I think, Steve, you and I have a similar entrance into uh, sort of the Reformed world. Uh, The first guy I cut my theological teeth on was John MacArthur, and I remember uh-huh. once again we're we're tracking together here. We it's are scary. always do, always do. And I was, um, I remember going to the bookstore looking for these things. He had these little study guides. Remember, they were like mm-hmm. little booklets almost, mm-hmm. which I'm sure that format isn't uh, there anymore. And I remember in the one, it was either Second Peter or First Timothy, as I'm sure Doctor Ware is going to cover some of these passages uh, tonight. Um, and, and I wish I could remember uh, which one, uh, but I know MacArthur said to my memory that he was a four-pointer uh, huh. be, because of one of those passages that many people conclude that Christ died only for the elect um, because of theological concerns. But the scripture actually says he died for everybody. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because I was just beginning to learn about tulip and uh you know uh yeah doctrines of grace sorts of uh, things then and then years later um you know i when i began to read other guys and kind of went back to check on him it seemed that he was a five-pointer but i never have seen the transition and i don't know if you have any insight on that doctor where you may not but i thought i would ask no i don't i wish i did yes um right i i i don't don't uh know the the uh history of that that'd be very interesting yeah because it's, i imagine someone does but I, i'm afraid i don't yes yes and maybe i mean we've got some pretty active listeners out there i could see somebody doing a late mm-hmm. night blog search project and saying i found it you know this is this is when it changed mm-hmm. uh, do you do you have any memory of that steve as well a, i remember john coming out clearly as a four-pointer and yes. I've, I've been assuming he would still identify himself as a four-pointer but i i'm just assuming that yeah i don't believe that's the case no. i believe there there has been a change made a transition and i've there, just huh? never heard where that we i've seen him on other things like his mm-hmm. sonship issue mm-hmm. uh remember at one point he was saying jesus was sort of the son in waiting and that created some hot water and then later he came out with a more clear i think change nuance um statement so that just was curious but uh, in your case, Doctor, where you've always held this position, um, so it's not like you sort of danced in the uh, uh, in the ballroom of five point Calvinism and then thought, "Yeah, I'm going to go next door uh, where I like no, my music a little right. better." Although the pressure was on to to uh, re- really adopt all five points, I um, bet. back when I was under the influence of those very 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 fine teachers. Yes, uh, but I just just couldn't see it from the text. Yeah, I'm really pleased so. that. You have been allowed to be on staff at Southern, and yet you're not a full-blown five-pointer. Has there been any tension at Southern over that? Good question. No, we, we have several. I, I, you know, the, it's the minority view there, mm-hmm. as it is in Calvinism more broadly, uh, but there are many of us there who are 
four pointers. That's nice. Right. Yeah, right. so it doesn't have to be a fighting issue. I'd like some of the hearers from my church to realize it does not have to yes. be a fighting issue. <laughs> yes. Amen. God Amen. Get along I am here. with you on that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I served, served on an elder board at our church. I'm not currently an elder, but I have with other men on the board who are very strong five pointers. Yes. And mm-hmm. uh, and we and we we love each other and we work together that well. Works. Yes. This, this is not an issue that really should divide. Uh, committed Calvinists, yes. and for that matter, committed Christians, right? That's right. Amen to that. Uh-huh. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm sure at this point um, everybody's appetite is wet, and I just sort of want to give you the floor, Dr. Ware, to pre- uh, you know, present to us. For people listening in, because I know we have a number of uh, very devout reform listeners that I think do assume that the orthodox position is all five points, definitive atonement, mm-hmm. died only for the elect, Speak to that and present your view for us, Dr. Ware. All right. Well, I will happily do so. Uh, I hope your your uh, hearers know that even at the Council of Dort that met in uh, 1618 and 19, that the only one of the five points there, of course, you know, that was a, that was a response to the five points of the Arminians. Yes. They were called the Remonstrants. That's how we ended up with these particular five points is because the Arminians came up with the opposite ones first. Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, kind of interesting. But in any case, the only point that was contested, and it was hotly contested hmm. at Dort, was uh, the point on, the, on particular redemption. Hmm. And so it really has been a, uh, a point of disagreement among Calvinists ever since the Reformation. And uh, there, there are notable you know, proponents of... of what might be called some version of the unlimited atonement view um, all through the history of Calvinism. And uh, I think why, why that is the case is basically because of uh, texts in Scripture that, that uh, just, it just seems impossible to read them fairly mm-hmm. and, and have them fit a limited atonement view. Um, now, of course, there are many texts that speak of, speak of Christ's death for the elect, mm-hmm. and those, those are wonderful. I mean, in John 6 and... John 10, I lay down my life for my sheep, and, and uh, uh, the, the, um, in 2 in, uh, uh, um, Corinthians 5.15 and Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church, gave himself for her. I mean, just a number of passages that, that uh, make it very, very clear that Christ died for the elect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely true. But it's just that there are other passages, you know? Mm-hmm. So we've got to count for everything in the Bible, not, not just those, and and, uh, you know, statements like First uh, Timothy 4.10, that uh, Christ is the Savior of all men, mm-hmm. especially of believers. Yes. Now, that's an mm. intriguing statement, mm. you know? Yes. But somehow he is Savior of unbelievers. Yes. I, I just don't see any other way to take that, that verse. Second uh, Peter 2.1 is really strong. It's speaking of people who are opposed to Christ and are teaching false, you know, false teachers and and they're destined for destruction. Yes. And it says they deny the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And here's the same uh, verb that is used in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 6 of uh, we've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And so it, it is this very strong statement of atonement mm-hmm. that has taken place. Um, 1 John 2.2, 2, Savior of all men. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, he, he's the propitiation for our sins and also for those of the whole world. Mm. Well, if you look at how world, how cosmos is used in John, it's used typically either of 
the bad stuff that is in the world, like do not love the world or the things that are in the world, or it's used of the whole world. I mean, everything that's in the world. And it, it just doesn't look like John has this category for the world of the elect, yes. which is what um, Five Pointers want to say that statement is really uh, indicating. Uh, you know, and so so I think um, when you look at these other passages, of course, even John 3.16 and John yes. one twenty nine, you know, would seem on just a straightforward reading of it to indicate he gave his son for the world, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think it is artificial to in, insert in all those places, well, well, by the way, this is the world of the elect, mm. and uh, so or the elect throughout the world. So that that's, I think, a, um, it's really this kind of straightforward reading of those passages that leads, leads one to think, huh, is it possible that there's more going on in the atonement than the salvation of the elect? Surely the salvation of the elect is, uh, is, is certain mm-hmm. in this. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but is there more than that? And uh, that's where I came up then ultimately with this view that I call the multiple intentions view, that there's more than one intention mm-hmm. uh, in, in, that the Father has in sending His Son. Uh, it's not just the intention of saving the elect, but, but a broader, in, broader set of intentions. Pardon me, Dr. You Ware. Know, is, yes, is, uh-huh. that, is that way of expressing it, the multiple intentions of the uh, atonement, is that, does that originate with you? Is that unique to you? Well, I'm not aware of uh, of that terminology being used earlier. It may have been. I mean, I hesitate saying uh, I came up with it. But I, at least I, I'm not aware of I'm not aware of it being used. At least that language. Yes, I had not run into it. I, I've never seen it, and I, I love it. It's a very helpful term. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because I know some of the terms, and I think you've um, uh, mentioned this. I, I've seen the sort of unlimited, limited, uh, yeah. which I know what people are doing, but that's. That almost instantaneously confuses the hearer. I yeah, think I know. It's very confusing. <laughs> me. But right, multiple right. intentions. Um, uh, so uh-huh. I think one of the points you've made, um, Dr. Ware, is that you actually agree um, with the five-pointer. It's just that in addition to what they say, you say more. Is that a, is that a fair yeah, characterization? Right. Yeah. I, I have had students come up to me after class saying, Dr. Ware, you're not a four-pointer. You're a six-pointer. Right, and, right. You know, just to, to make that uh, – that same point you're making. Well, I, you know, and I will say to them what I'll say to you, actually not, because, I, you know, we really do differ over the question, whose sin is imputed to Christ? Oh, okay, yes. You know, that's where the, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. And a five-pointer will say, only the sin of the elect is imputed to Christ. Mm-hmm. I will say the sin of all people uh, is, is imputed to Christ. And uh, so he really does die for the sin of all people. I think that's what those texts are intending to say. Yes. Interesting. Now, uh, you're, uh, you're pushing me to the wall here and clarifying things for me a bit, maybe. I have considered myself, for years now, I've considered myself to be a, a five-point Calvinist, but I like to define particular redemption myself. And I have believed that, that uh, the world passages mean world and the all um, passages mean all and so on. You know, for okay. exegetical reasons, I believe that. But I've thought, uh, in one sense, I'm a five-pointer. I believe the, the 
the intent of Christ's death was for the elect only. The saving intent was for the elect. But in another sense, I'm a four-pointer. I believe he died for all, meaning all. Uh, I've preferred to hang on to my five-pointer and say I, I get to define it myself. But you're saying, no, really, I am a four-pointer. Well, if, if you, yeah, I think that question of whose sin is imputed to Christ is a little more precise. That's the deciding and, question. You know, help, helps you, helps mm. you, um, you know, divide divide between the two views a bit a bit more clearly. And uh, so I, I would affirm then that all sin is imputed to Christ, although it's the Father's intention and the Son's own knowledge. You know, all yes. the, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and mm-hmm. I will raise them up on the last day. Mm-hmm. He knows when he dies on the cross who the elect are, mm-hmm. who actually are the ones who will be saved by his atoning death, as opposed to the others who stand in the place of greater judgment because they are rejecting the very gift that they are given in his atoning death, uh, which I think is indicated in some passages as well, that there's a greater judgment that is incurred uh, when you reject what Christ has done, and I think it is because he died for you, hmm. and, uh, and, and you're rejecting that. Interesting, interesting, Dr. Ward. I, I know you've been asked this, and I think you even in your outline mentioned it, but let me just um, argue back a little bit, and, and more from the standpoint I'm representing common objections that I've heard. Often sure. when Calvinists, and I guess I'm saying five-point Calvinists, debate um, Arminians on the issue of election in general, when they get to the death of Christ, I've heard many a Calvinist say, hey, you know what? If Christ died for everybody, like you say, then everybody's saved because right. of the doctrine of propitiation. Then, in essence, Christ has borne the wrath due all sinners. So you're a universalist. Something tells me you've been hit with that charge before. And I'd oh, love, yeah. <laughs> love to know, how do you uh, navigate through that? Well, the answer is going to be uh, a Sunday school simple answer. Yes. And the, the, the answer is, the atoning death of Christ in and of itself is not saving. Mm-hmm. It, it requires that there is a subjective appropriation of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. We call that saving faith. Yes. So even though, uh, I mean, think of the elect. The elect are born into this world, and we would all agree Christ died for them. I mean, there's no dispute on that point. Mm-hmm. Christ died for the elect, and yet they're born into this world under the wrath of God, deserving divine judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they deserve to pay for what Christ has paid for them. Yes. Uh, they, they deserve to be condemned, though Christ has taken their condemnation for them, mm-hmm. so it, until until a person believes, they they retain that condemnation. So for uh, the the un the the non-elect, it simply is the case that because they never do believe, they retain that necessity uh, to make the payment for their own sin uh, th- themselves, and so they pay eternally. Yes, uh, and and uh, because because saving faith is the point when you when you are saved, right? So when the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Paul does not say to him, hey, let's check to see if you're one of the elect. And if you are, (laughs) then guess what? You're already saved. This is good news. Right. Now believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Yes. I met a a guy once. He he was so 
I don't know how to say this. He was so Calvinistic. I asked him, so, you know, I, I was just meeting him. He was in my church. So, uh, brother, you know, when did you become a Christian? And he said, I've, uh, 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 from eternity past. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. So now, right. wait a minute. What, but was there a day when you actually found out about yes, it? You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That, that... Well, there is a, there is a minority view among Calvinists. I mean, w- within Calvinism of what is called eternal justification, that, that it is the case that because God has elected us to be saved and, and he's, uh, in, he, he has planned for our sins to be uh, atoned for by Christ's death on the cross, that he never does view us as condemned. Hmm. That is the elect. Interesting. So eternal justification. I but I don't think that's I, what the New Testament teaches. No. Yeah, I think it's right? a commentary on the trouble we get into when we start devising our systems and stop exegeting Scripture. Right. Uh-huh. Right. I agree. Yes. I think, you know, notice, by the way, that most of the arguments in favor of the view that I hold uh, now, for right or wrong, but nonetheless, they're based on interpreting Scripture. Yes. Most of the objections are logical arguments. Yes. But that's yeah, not exactly. to say they're invalid. I don't mean that. But what I, <laughs> what I do mean is that I think we can get things tied up tightly in a yes. system in ways that can violate the text of Scripture. Yes. And we need to really be careful not to do that. Yes. And it's interesting when that's done sometimes, Dr. Ware, in the name, uh, under the Reformed banner, when the irony is, of course, the, you know, I mean, sola scriptura. Yeah, we're uh, supposed to be the guys yeah. with the high view of Scripture. With the highest view and, you know, sometimes yeah. to say, hey, too bad for my theology. Uh, right. You know, let let the Scripture speak and let my theology uh, be continually tweaked, challenged, reformed. Exactly. But and, instead. Yes, often we, we hold these texts uh, hostage. Interesting, Dr. you've actually... You have a very easy way to respond to somebody. Uh, in other words, my little anecdote here. A few years ago at our church, we had a guy who I, I pretty much knew from day one was not going to fit. He was a thoroughly Reformed guy, well-studied, uh, had heard that we were a Reformed church, which is definitely our flavor. It's not what we lead with, but it's sort of our skeletal structure, you know, but we – you know, we, we, when we put a hand out, as we say, we, we don't put a bony hand out. You know, we want some, some skin on that hand and, and are, are, are trying to welcome people in. He analyzed everything from the singing to the prayers through a very, very tight framework, um, uh-huh. very thoroughly five-point grid. And he was bothered. We sang a song. I think it's a Sovereign Grace song called All I Have is Christ. And one uh-huh. of the lines in it is um, – it's looking back on the time before you came to know Christ, and it says, "As I ran my hell-bound race," mm-hmm. ah. catches me afterwards. Yeah. Says that is that. totally unscriptural. Oh. I was never hell-bound because oh. God chose me from the beginning really? of the really? world. And I, but I, oh. I, I didn't even think of this. But in a sense, Doctor, uh, what you're saying speaks to that issue directly. That wait a minute, yeah. wait a minute. Prior to our coming to faith in Christ, we can legitimately say that we were objects of wrath yes. um, uh, uh, and, and condemn worthy sinners, correct? Right, absolutely. I mean, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, yes. just, I mean, makes that so clear, doesn't it? Yes. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. Yes. Um, and, you know, enslaved to Satan, and, you know, just all the things that Paul describes in those three verses, that, that characterized our lives as Christians before we were saved. So yes. yes, we were under the wrath of God. We deserved uh, we deserved to go to hell. 
Um, I mean, goodness, this is what we were saved from. Mm-hmm. We don't want to lose that. Yes. Wow, yes. You, you never want to lose an understanding of what you were saved from. Right, right. It's so and... much of the glory of what you were, <laughs> of your salvation, not, not all of it, not all of it. There's a whole lot on the side of what you were saved to. Oh, absolutely. But, but goodness, there's a lot that, that's so important never to forget. Yes. What we're saved from. We we were deserving eternal condemnation. Right. And uh, yeah. So. So and um, I'm curious, Doctor, how do you uh, respond? Because again, another sort of classic confessional Calvinist argument is, yeah. um, and I, I've seen Christ did not die for an opportunity. Christ did not fail in his mission. Christ right. succeeded in his mission. Uh, if he dies for people that never. Uh, come to faith, then he failed. This is a a, uh, a common battle cry that I've heard many times, right. and we all have. And uh, what say you to that? Yeah, good. Thank, thank you, Steve. Well, one thing is if there are, if there is more than one intention, and one of those intentions happens to be uh, <laughs> something that doesn't have to do with their salvation, then there is there there's no loss. There's there's no sense in which he failed. Yes. It? So that that's one thing to say. Uh, the other thing I think is that if the um, if if you realize that the the saving work of Christ on the cross, as we talked about a moment ago, has to be followed by by belief, which the Spirit then. So I, I of course affirm with all my heart the doctrine of irresistible grace or effectual calling mm-hmm. uh, that the Spirit must work in the heart of a person to bring them to faith in Christ. And only the elect will be brought to faith in Christ. But it's at that point that the person is saved. Then, then we really should not say that the death of Christ in itself saved sinners. Mm. But this is the way oftentimes advocates of the, mm. the five-point view will speak. Christ didn't die just to make salvation possible. He died to save sinners. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I don't know quite what to do with that, because are you forgetting that they're not saved until until they believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pretty hard argument you know, so, to get around. Yeah. So really the intention of God in uh, in his Son to save the elect is fulfilled as the Spirit works in them to bring faith, and his intention, in the intention of... in the salvation... I'm sorry, in the death of Christ for the non-elect is fulfilled as he purchases them for other purposes that he has. Hmm. Uh, one of which is to bring upon them uh, the greater condemnation for their disbelief, uh, but also, I think, to reign over them ultimately as judge. He purchases them, in a sense, to judge them in the end. Interesting. Yes, going back, of course, to the Second Peter text. Yes. Uh, I, I preached through Second Peter recently, Dr. Ware, and... Uh, um, I almost feel like I'm going to the principal's office here. But I, <laughs> my, uh, my take there when I got to Second uh, Peter was, of course, it is a um, – I mean, again, a number of the people in the church, particularly newer folks, uh, young believers, I don't even know if they necessarily know what Reformed theology is. That tends to be a deeper conversation right. uh, that members learn and, and you know that sort of thing. So I'm, I, I just sort of our MO here in our – uh, non-denominational context um, is I, I realize there's a number of people out there that are scratching their heads a bit because they do know. So I always do a little inside baseball and say, look, this is a passage which many of you 
that have uh, really immersed yourselves in some finer points of theology uh, will grapple with. My take on that was that he is uh, going by their profession, um, which I guess is is a classic sort of five point, that the Mm -hmm. irony uh, is that they are denying the one who they claim bought them. Um, And uh, I I can almost guess what you would say is I don't think you would – you would call that a, an unorthodox, heretical interpretation, but uh, yours oh, no, is is obviously a much. Can I say straightforward? This is almost mm-hmm. what the uh, what the dispensational argument always is: the plain, straight reading of scripture. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> right. in a sense, yes. I mean, it is to say no. He, you would come to that text, Doctor Word, and say yes, he did buy them, yes, and it is did. it's quite a literal purchase. And hence, the force of that statement. Yes. Look at what was done for them. He yes. bought them, and yet they're rejecting that. So indeed, the judgment upon them is uh, greater and uh, and so clearly deserved. Yes. I think that's, that's really what Peter is driving at in that. Dr. Ware, when we come to these various passages that we're discussing, I'll go back to John 3.16, God so loved the world. Yeah. Uh, when we come to a world passage, is it... Is it responsible, is it fair to ask ourselves the question, what would John's original readers have understood when they read that, and would they have any way of imagining, oh, that only means the world of the elect, or that means the world, Gentiles, in addition to Jews, or any such other thing. Did they have any reason to believe such a thing? Is that a reasonable way to approach the text and thus point out world just means world? Yeah, that's a a good point. I, I think it is it is reasonable to ask that question. It may not settle the interpretive uh, uh, you know task that you have because it's possible that there's a divine intention you know in that that isn't necessarily that doesn't match what would, would have missed. been understood by the people at the time right. but but I think in that particular text, verse nineteen is so telling in terms of world because if you interpret John three sixteen as God so loves the elect in the world, or the or the, the world that it, uh, of of the elect, or something like that, uh, then you come to verse nineteen where world is used again. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. <laughs> they they would not come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. So the point that he's making there, of course, is this is the world that includes unbelievers. Just it's very three clear. Away. Yes. Yeah, and so it's hard for me to think that John would have had in verse 16 that notion of just believers in the world when he uses it again, just you know, just moments later with this very clear sense of everyone in the world, including people who hate hate the light that comes there. So I, I think that's a clear text of uh, at least you know it's a clear text of God's love yes. uh, for the whole world. Of course, there are many, many more that speak of God's love just for his own. Yes. That, that is very precious. You know, in uh, uh, in love he predestined us to adoption as son through Jesus Christ. I mean, just on and on, so many. But but here is a very clear text of universal love of God for all people. And, um, I, and it also indicates, then, I think, an intention of God to provide his son for the whole world. Mm. And that seems to me to imply also a universal atonement in that. Interesting. Without, without, without concluding, ah, universal salvation then. Yes. Absolutely not. But it is a real gift that is then rejected. 
as opposed to one that isn't actually given to those people Hmm. who perish in the end. Now, Dr. Ware, uh, what happened with me is uh, I did make the pilgrimage into full-blown five-point Calvinism, uh, although I wrestled uh-huh. with some of these texts, I wondered, really, really, can I can I say world just means world of the elect, really? But I, but I went ahead and accepted the whole thing. But it was R.L. Dabney who changed me. Uh-huh. I, ha- I had a period of time where I was binging on R.L. Dabney. Mm-hmm. For, for the hearers, he was a great Southern theologian in the Civil War era, uh, served as a chaplain to Stonewall Jackson for a while, but then right. illness made mm-hmm. him leave that and go back home. Um, he taught at Union Theological Seminary. Princeton in the North wanted him. But he always said, no, 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 I'm staying in the South. Southern soil. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. he he was a great man. Uh, But uh, I worked my way through the works of R.L. Dabney, and he had one paper in there, I guess you'd call it, where he talks about the need to exegete these passages fairly, and world has to mean world, and all has to mean all. And so uh, one of his biographers called him a moderate Calvinist. So uh-huh. I never heard the term in that era, well, you're a four-pointer, you're a five-pointer. It was rather, right. he was a moderate Calvinist. Am I okay if I just call myself a moderate Calvinist? <laughs> well, I, I would think so. Yeah. I guess you're, you're free to call yourself whatever you yeah. like. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I mean, Dabney, you know, it's, it's, I always say uh, it's nice when you have a, a rabbi to hide behind, right? The, uh, yeah. the, old, the old rabbi right. stacking wars, you know, so-and-so sure. says this, so-and-so says that. Um, that's... Uh, uh, interesting, Doctor. I, we're, we're winding down on time, but I do have to, to say uh, to Steve's point there. When I was uh, when I was deeply exploring this, uh, one of the the challenges I had. I was a college kid. I'm in uh, what is now called Crew. Of course, was uh, Campus Crusade back then in the uh, late '80s, early '90s. I was at a PCA church. Wonderful pastor. He's still serving. He's a very uh, tender man. And I asked him. I said, Doctor Rogers. Um, uh, I don't know, am I right to tell people that Christ died for them? Mm. And he said, of course you are, Greg. And he, he talked about what, oh. hyper, what hyper-Calvinism was, etc. He said, he did say, and I, I, I don't say this critically, he said, can I suggest, here's how I like to say it, Christ died for sinners like you. See, that's, that's what I was taught, that yes, you don't say that you, Christ died for you. It, he was uh, more gracious and said, of course, you know, there's human language that we use to express God's general benevolence to the non-elect, etc. He knows we can't know. But what I'm finding really intriguing about Dr. Ware's position, I can tell you are too, uh, Steve, as well, is that, I mean, Doctor, you would say boldly, tell the unbeliever uh, Christ died for you. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, goodness, I think we need to say what we truly believe uh, reflects what Scripture teaches. Yes. And if you do hold a five-point view, I think you you are duty-bound to say something like, Christ died for sinners like you and me. Yes. I mean, from, from my yes. perspective, I have no hesitation. In fact, I find great delight yes. in looking in the eyes of an unbeliever, at least I believe this person is, is not saved at this point, and saying to them, Christ died for you. Mm-hmm. Wow. He paid the penalty of your sin. The only thing keeping you from salvation is believing. Now, you similarly, believe in Christ? Similarly, yeah. in my past, you were not allowed to say, Jesus loves you. Ah. Because there was a question yeah. about that. Um, right. And you had to say, you know, Jesus loves people, died for people. If you believe on him, you'll receive yeah. that love, that yep. kind of thing. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, 
I'm thinking about the rich young ruler who went away sad because he had many possessions. And it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mm-hmm. And my, my friends used to say, well, that means he really was elect and he would eventually come to Christ oh. or Jesus wouldn't have loved him. <laughs> I mean, the, oh, even yeah. the, the exegetical well, contortions we get into. It feels a bit forced, uh, yeah. doesn't yes. it? It does feel a bit forced. Right. Um, Interesting. Well, I'm looking you here. Know, at, if, oh, I'm sorry. Please. Uh, yeah, Greg, if I could just ma- mention one other text I think would be good for the listeners to take a look at is Colossians 1.20. As well, we've we've uh, thought about a number of others, but this is just intriguing because it, it, you know it's right on the heels of Colossians one sixteen, where Christ creates everything in heaven and earth, and then in verse twenty we're told that He reconciles all things mm-hmm. to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Mm-hmm. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, so that that use of heaven and earth again in in one twenty that uh, just is unmistakably tied to heaven and earth in 116, uh, yeah, just, again, presses this point of a, a broader understanding of the atoning death of Christ that, that defeats all sin, brings peace. Mm. You know, so I really am opposed to C.S. Lewis's view. I don't know if you know, know his view on this. It's in his book, The Problem of Pain, mm-hmm. in the chapter on hell in that book. Uh, C.S. Lewis's view that the rebel's flag is planted in hell. Uh, oh. the, do- the gates of hell are locked from the inside. The inside, yes, yes. Yeah, and, and so the idea is that, that uh, you know, they, they remain in their deception and their rebellion against God. And I just think that is flatly wrong. Hmm. This text, and also Philippians 2, every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, indicate there will come a time when the deception is removed. I see. And everybody knows that God is God, Christ is Lord, Savior and Lord, and there is peace, peace in the sense that there's no longer this defiant rebellion against God. But the sinners who go to hell know they are getting what they deserve. Yes. And there's no protest. So I, anyway, I, I just think that's a very different way of thinking of this, and uh, a verse... That, that verse, Colossians 120. I think we need um, another podcast on oh, that. Oh, my yeah. goodness. I was going to say, open that up. we're right here I'm, at the I'm end. I'm sitting here a little dumbfounded. And thinking, I, huh, interesting. I would love to oh, pick up that thought. <laughs> See, you can tell you're a professional, Dr. Ware, because you've ended on a cliffhanger. Because yes. <laughs> I was jotting some right. things down there, too. Uh-huh. That um, Well, I want to be mindful of time, Dr. Ware, but let me just say, um, at and I'm not pressuring you with this, but at some other point in the future, we'd love to have you back on. Because I, I have a right. sense we may have just scratched the surface. We know you're an mm-hmm. extremely busy man, uh, so we we will um, you know see uh, as time allows itself for you yeah. to do that, uh, and we can talk uh, offline about that. But again, Doctor, we've given right. us so much to think about, and um, again, we're going to put these notes up on our uh, show notes. And Doctor, Ware, thank you so much for being with us tonight. You're welcome, Greg and Steve. Both enjoyed very much being with you. Blessings on you both. You bet. Gentlemen, we just rocked the Casbah. Rocked it. These go to 11.